please turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 33. Exodus, chapter number 33. I have a very simple message for you this morning, but one that could for you be the difference between life and death, the difference between heaven and hell, the difference between justice and grace. Exodus chapter 33, we'll begin reading in verse number one. If you found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Exodus 33, one, the Bible says, the Lord spoke to Moses, go, leave here you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your offspring. I'll send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now that was the message that God had given them. Something had changed. The next sentence the Bible reads, But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, They mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I went with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses took a tent and set it up outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, But his assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, Look, you've told me, lead this people up, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now if I have indeed found favor in your sight, please teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now consider that this nation is your people. Then he replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses says in verse 15, If your presence doesn't go, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You're to stand on the rock and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock And cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face 
will not be seen. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We tend to be so drawn to this experience that Moses has, seeing the back of God's glory, whatever that intends, that we miss what I think is the principal message here in chapter 33. Great change has taken place. A great shift has happened. In Exodus chapter 20, as God begins to unfold his law for the people of God, he says, I'm now going to reveal my glory to you through the law. And we see the righteousness of God communicated to the people of God through the law of God. In other words, in the law, we learn of the holiness of God. As God describes for us the standard by which we must live, we are faced with the realization that this standard exceeds our own ability for righteousness. If you don't read the law of God and think, this is beyond my natural capacity, you're not reading the law of God with integrity. Now, it's easy to read the law of God with hypocrisy. We have the law to conform to the likeness of our image to our standard of righteousness, or we turn the law such that we can apply that to other people while we insulate ourselves from the force of what God has required of us. But if you read the law of God with sincerity, with integrity, you must come to the realization that a God who would call us to such an incredibly high standard of righteousness is himself holy, holy, holy. God says in Exodus 20, I'm going to reveal myself to you through the law. You're going to behold my glory. And it's that righteousness of God. It's that attribute of God's character that's revealed to us through the law. Here we are on the other side of the infamous golden calf incident. The people of God have sinned and they have sinned grievously. We're going to be introduced to here in chapter 33 An entirely different attribute of God's character, but one which is no less glorious than his perfect righteousness. That is his immeasurable grace toward his people. Look back to verse 1. God said, go, leave here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, stop. This is the promise that God had made in the past to the people of Israel. But something has happened, hasn't it? There's a a change of course that's described by God. God had formerly promised that not only would they inherit the land that flowed with milk and honey, but that he would go with them. That God would be with them in their wilderness wanderings, that he would be with them in their travels, that he would be with them as they crossed over the Jordan and into the promised land, that he would go before them, granting them victory over the peoples that inhabited the land. Now he says, I will not go with you, and I won't go because you're a stiff-necked people. In fact, he says, if I do go, I may kill you on the way. This sounds like family vacation, doesn't it? Miss Brandy's talking to me about family vacation and we can't drive to Walmart without trying to kill the children. God says, if I go with you, this is going to end badly. 
We often talk about wanting to be brought near God. I, frankly, I hear people say, I, I want to be near God sometimes, and I think, I don't know if you know what you're asking for. The thing that has changed is sin. The golden calf incident of Exodus chapter 32 has changed the dynamic in the relationship that exists between God and his people. Sin separates us from God. Again, a very simplistic message, but one that you must wrestle with as a people. You know this by experience as followers of Jesus, that even on this side of our conversion, when we give ourselves to sin, that it has the effect of separating us from the fellowship we might otherwise enjoy with God. It's not that God has abandoned us or left us, but there's a real sense of disconnectedness as we walk away from the things of God and to the things of the world. Sin separates us, and this is experienced in our lives as followers of Jesus. But, but even before that lesser separation on this side of our conversion, th there is a great chasm fixed between a holy, holy, holy God and an unrighteous people. In our sin, we are separate from God. We are separate from God, and an impassable gulf has been fixed between humanity and the holy, holy, holy God of heaven. Sin has changed the nature of the relationship that once existed between God and the people of Israel. And sin has changed the nature of the relationship that once existed between God and humanity. We were made for worship, as we observed last week. We were created for fellowship with God, and then sin entered the world. When sin entered the world, the whole dynamic was changed. Things are different now on this side of sin. Brothers and sisters, lost or believers, you are a sinner by birth, and you are a sinner by choice, and that in and of itself changes entirely the, the relationship that exists between you and God. God says, I'll not go. If I win, I'd kill you. It would result in your death, in my wrath, in, a, in an instant, you would be destroyed. In fact, he says, if I went with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. M Moses sets about the business of intercession, beginning in verse number 7. And the Bible says, Moses took a tent and set it up outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Here... In the former chapters, God said, I'm going to dwell in your midst through the, in the tabernacle. And he gave them this long set of instructions as to how the tabernacle was to be constructed. We looked through those chapters some months ago now. But now Moses is meeting with God in the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whereas God had once promised that he would go with them, whereas God had once promised that he would dwell in their midst, now there's distance between the camp of Israel and the tent of God. Moses goes outside the camp to meet with God. And the Bible says that anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. In verse 8, the Bible says, When Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch until Moses entered the tent. When Moses entered, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. The Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. 
And Moses would return to the camp, but his assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. There's an air of expectation and anticipation and even a degree of anxiety in the hearts of the Israelites as they watch Moses approach the tent. When Moses goes to the tent, the glory of God comes in a cloud and Moses speaks with God as a man speaks with his friend face to face. What stirred the anxiety of the people of Israel is this great question. Is there anything that can be done that can reconcile us now in our unrighteousness to a holy, holy God descending on the tent of meeting just outside the camp? There is an observable distance between the people of Israel and the God who had brought them out in the Exodus event. They can see with their eyes that God is not near in the way he once was leading them out into their wilderness journey. Can anything be done? Can Moses mediate an agreement? Can we renew the covenant? Is there any safety for us from this God of great wrath? They knew of his righteousness. Certainly they knew of his justice. The close of chapter 32, last week's text, 3,000 Israelites fell by the sword as a direct result of their idolatry and dancing about the golden calf. A great plague had been sent among them, and there's the looming threat of future judgment. God says there's going to come come a day when we'll settle the accounts, and everyone who has sinned against me will pay the penalty for their sin. Can anything be done? Can Moses say something to God that would compel him to relent in his wrath against us? In our society, we have been I think we've gotten enough of the gospel. We're almost inoculated against this idea. We expect that God is obligated to show us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And here the people of Israel are standing with some degree of anxiety. They're looking out to the tent, hopeful that somehow, some way, Moses can do something that would move God to relent in the judgment that might otherwise come against them. Verse 12, the Bible says, Moses said to the Lord, Look, you've told me, lead this people up, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Now, the background here is what Moses is asking is, are any of these other people going? God has said to Moses, you know my name and I know you. You enjoy favor with me. But in chapter 32, when God saw their idolatry with the golden calf, the threat was, I'm going to kill everybody and start over with Moses. I'm not going to nullify the promise I made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to make their descendants as the sand on the seashore, the stars of the sky. No, I'm just going to hit reset. And I'm going to begin again in the man Moses. Moses says, Lord, you said I was going up, but you've not yet revealed to me who's going with me. In other words, Moses seems to be suggesting I'd like some company in this trip between Sinai and the promised land. You said I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now, consider that this nation is your people. Now, God referred to them in last week's text in chapter 32 as Moses' people, and they were behaving like Moses' people. But here Moses says, God, they're they're your people. Remember that they're, they're your people. This nation belongs to you. And God replied in verse 14, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And Moses said in verse 15, If your presence doesn't go, 
don't make us go up from here. Now, Moses is essentially saying, if we have to stay here to be with you, then I would just as soon stay here. I was looking at some pictures of the Sinai Desert this week. They just happened to come up in an article that I was reading in preparation for this morning. It's, it's not a scenic view. There are hills and there are mountains and desert land, no water, no food, no city, not a lot to do out in the wilderness. But Moses says it's better to live in a place of desolation in the presence of God than it is to live in a land that flows with milk and honey if God is not with us. Moses says, God, if you won't go with us, just let us stay here. In verse 16, he asks, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I'll do this very thing you've asked, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God in some way says, I'm going to reverse course. Because of the favor that you enjoy with me, Moses, I'm going to honor your petition. I'm going to grant your request. I'm going to relent in the judgment that I might have otherwise brought against the people of Israel. Now, how is it that God might do such a thing? Where, where in his character, as we've discovered so far, has it been revealed to us that God has the capacity for such a move? Isn't it the case that the justice, the righteousness of God, demands that God would deal forcefully with the sin of Israel? I would argue it does. If God is righteous as we have observed he is, if the law says something of his integrity, his character, his uprightness, his moral purity, his goodness, his fierce righteousness, doesn't it stand to reason that God would bring judgment against those who come short of that kind of standard? The remainder of chapter 33 and a great deal of chapter 34 help us to understand a new attribute of God's character, new in the sense that it's introduced as new here in chapter 34. In the same way that sin separates us from God. It is the grace of God. Grace reunites us or restores fellowship with God. And I want you to see this morning, again, this is very simple. This is the Christian faith 101, but it's critically important, eternally significant, that the grace that God has shown us is in no way in conflict with or a violation of his perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness, by the way, uh, dictates that justice must be served. That is that you and I must pay for all of our crimes and misdemeanors. Your sin must be paid for. It must be dealt with. And here as God reveals something of his glory to Moses, we're introduced to that attribute of God's character that affords for us a place next to the holy, holy, holy God of heaven in spite of the dreadful things we may have done. Go to verse 18. Moses said, perhaps emboldened by God's granting his request, please let me see your glory. And he said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
But he answered, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You're to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. What it seems that Moses sees of the glory of God is the glory of his grace. Listen to what Moses says, the proclamation that's made concerning God in chapter 34 and verse number 6, Moses having seen the back of God's glory. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses says, we knew of the righteousness and the justice of God, but we have beheld something new in the character of God, his great grace. When God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you, he points Moses to the reality of of his grace. I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name before you, and here's what you'll see. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's the product of God's grace that we may be brought near to the God of heaven. We may be restored to God in spite of our unrighteousness because of his grace. God could have killed all of Israel and would have been perfectly justified in doing so. And we might add to that, God could have killed all of us and would have been perfectly justified in doing so. But in grace, he has afforded us restoration, not by the dismissal of the charges against us, but by affording that the penalty for our sin would be paid by his own son. God God is not saying here arbitrarily in a careless way, in a way that's meaningless. I'm just going to sort of forget about what you've done in your past, and we're just going to let that go, and you're going to get a new opportunity. If you were on the way home this afternoon and you were driving a little faster than you were supposed to be driving and a trooper pulled you over and he did not give you a driving certificate, you would say, oh, he showed me grace. And on a certain level, that would be grace. But that is not the kind of grace that God affords us through Jesus. The grace that God affords us through Jesus is in perfect balance with the justice of God. By the way, justice would dictate that you deserve that ticket if you're driving faster than you need to. And you've got no right to be angry with the trooper that writes you your driving certificate either. In the same sense that we have no right to be angry with God who works with justice against us in our sinfulness. But by his grace, by his grace, he has allowed that the punishment for your sin and for my sin would be paid by his son, Jesus Christ. The only one who could pay the price for our sin. Because he's the only one who doesn't have a price to pay for his own sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. In order that we might become the righteousness of God. 
People talk about wanting to be near God, having these spiritual experiences. But understand that except through Jesus, where the penalty for your sin is paid, where your unrighteousness is covered in his blood, you don't want to be near God. You could not survive for one second in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. It's only grace that can restore us to God. It's not your works. You can't do enough. You can't do enough. You can't do enough. Because the stain of a single sin is enough to bring the judgment of God against you. Just a single sin. It's only grace that can restore fellowship with God. Without respect to what you've done in the past. And for that matter, without respect to what you might do in the future. It's only grace. It's only grace. It's only grace. It's not a cheap grace like this world knows. A grace that leaves us unmoved, unfazed, unaffected. It's a grace with great power. There's a further difference between our getting off on the driving ticket and the grace that's afforded us in Jesus. You'll be likely to leave there, inclined to drive fast again, hopeful that the next trooper would show you the same grace that the last trooper showed you, which is the reason why most of them will not show you that kind of grace in the first place. But the grace that we have been afforded in Jesus propels us to new heights of obedience. If you're here as an unbeliever, you're here without a relationship with Jesus, operating under the idea that I'm going to get my act together and then I'm going to come to God, you have completely missed the point of the gospel. What we learn of ourselves in the gospel is that we are broken, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. You don't have the ability to get yourself together, let alone come before God. But when he shows us the grace that he's shown us in Jesus, not only is our sin taken away, but the Spirit of God comes to abide within us, enabling to begin by his power to pull our mess together again. The grace the Bible speaks of is not a passive grace. It's an active grace with great power in our life. You know how to be obedient? Confess your disobedience to God and plead that he would fill you with the Spirit. Operate in the power the Spirit provides and not your own. This is grace. This is grace. This is grace. And again, Christianity 101 But it's beautifully illustrated for us here in the case of the people of Israel. The only way, the only way they could be restored to fellowship with God was by grace. There's a little bit of a run here to try to do what God had instructed them to do. They're going out to the tent of meeting from time to time. They're standing and uh, anxiously hoping that Moses would do something out there. There's a religiosity about the people. But no no amount of obedience to the law formally given could turn back the hands of time, reverse the golden calf incident. It's only grace. It's only grace. It's only grace. There's some of you this morning who've had your golden calf incident. Sin has changed the course of your life. And you have created a mess for yourself that you cannot fix in your own power. The only recourse that you're left with, the only way to move forward in your experience is to come empty-handed before the God of heaven to confess your sins and to plead the blood of Jesus for your forgiveness. 
One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 John 1, 9, where John says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John doesn't say it that way because it's poetic. He says it that way because it communicates a totality of God's character active in our conversion. That God is being who he is, honoring justice and mercy as he grants us the forgiveness of our sin. He is faithful to forgive and he is justified in doing so. If your sins are just carelessly forgiven, there is no justification for that. If you go before the high court and you are found to be guilty of your sin and you are not called to account, that in and of itself is injustice. But God, in affording us the grace and the mercy and the compassion that we enjoy in Jesus, is both faithful and just. He is justified in showing us forgiveness because the penalty has been paid. Someone has paid for the things that you have done. Exodus 33, the mercy, the grace that God affords the people of Israel is dependent upon the payment of their sin debt in a day that was to come. This morning, on February the 16th, 2020, at Longview Point Church, if you were to bow your head, pray and ask that God would forgive you of your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, Turn away from the things of this world and begin a relationship with Jesus. Your forgiveness would be dependent on the payment of that penalty 2,000 years ago. God doesn't just forget about the things that we've done. No, the price has been paid. The just one has been given over for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Christian faith. We have recognized of ourselves that we are sinful people. I love the way Moses describes it here in verse 4. After God says, I'm not going with you, the Bible says, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. Before you ever get to the good news of the gospel, you're going to have to come to terms with the bad news of your sinfulness. That you are irreparably broken that no amount of determination or self-will can pull you out of the mess you've created for yourself. And then we get to the good news, that there is hope, and there is grace, and there is mercy. But those are found only in Jesus. You must turn away from the things of this world and run to Christ for the grace that you so desperately need. Aren't you glad for what God has done for us through his perfect Son, Jesus Christ.